Good morning. We'll be reading today from Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, to Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. Let's bring our attention to God's word. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Slaves, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Thus ends the reading of God's word. If I haven't met you, my name is Quinn, and I'm eager to get in the word um, with you guys. Uh, You may be familiar with the 1998 Jim Carrey film, The Truman Show. Uh, The movie centers around the life of a man named Truman Burbank, who from birth was raised inside of an artificial place. An entire television set was his world. And everyone participating in this world was an actor, except for Truman himself. Truman was the unwitting star of The Truman Show, in the real world. And so the film climaxes with Truman's realization of this, of the nature of of this false identity and this false world and the dramatic decision that he has before him to walk through an exit door into a new and true identity. So imagine what that would be like. Imagine you're Truman and you've lived your life this way all your life with this family, with this home, with this workplace. And this door is open for you and you take those first steps into this new world, into a new identity. Everything changes, everything. Your identity has changed and the implications are profound, touching every area of your life. Over the last few weeks here at Kingsway, we've been exploring Colossians 3 in what it means to put off the old self and to put on the new self. And without Christ, our relationships in particular are just a mess, right? (laughs) Uh, There's a lot that we need to put off, right? Just think about this with me. Without Christ, we are by nature unsubmissive, unloving, harsh, disobedient, provocative, discouraging, misguided, self-serving, unjust, and unfair, That's our lives. That's our nature before Christ. Before we walk through the doorway, through the gracious gift of salvation in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. With Christ, our identity has changed. And as we live out this new identity, we are called and equipped 
to, as Colossians 3.12 says, put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And let's be honest, it's, it's not too difficult to affirm that those are the things that we're called to do, right? To be humble, to be gracious, to be kind, to forgive. I think we all can say that those are Christian virtues that we're called to, and, and maybe that we're even pretty good at, at least by our own estimation. But what about when scripture starts to meddle a little bit more with our personal relationship, when scripture starts to get specific about how God wants us to relate in different areas of our home and our life. Today's message is titled, Relationships Submitted to Christ. And and what I want to ask is, why did Paul add these specific instructions in our text? He could have limited his teaching to kind of more generic Christian virtues, the ones that are described in the preceding verses, but he didn't. He looked to where the ascended Christ is sitting, Chapter 3, verse 1, seated at the right hand of God. And he wanted to communicate a central point in these nine verses. And this is the main idea of today's message. So here it is. Everything in our life, including marriage and parenting and work relationships, ought to be gladly submitted under the lordship of Christ. We'll leave this on the screen for a moment if you want to write that down. The new spiritual life that Paul's first readers were experiencing comes also with being united to a new spiritual family, but that doesn't eliminate the significance of their respective physical families and their homes. This is where the analogy of the Truman Show breaks down. We don't escape from these relationships in our home and work. Rather, our conduct in these spheres takes on a greater significance as we live out our new identity in Christ. I've divided our text into three points corresponding with three sets of correlating relationships that were present in the lives of the Colossians. So these are the three points that you can expect me to follow today. Our marriage relationships, our parenting relationships, and our work relationships. From this text, it's clear that the Colossian believers relate differently after becoming followers of the Lord Jesus. So the question that guides our time this morning is how do we gladly submit to the Lord, to the Lordship of Christ in my relationships? That's the question. So I'm going to form these as three separate questions. Question one, how do we gladly submit to the Lordship of Christ in marriage relationships? So this section addresses wives first, followed by husbands. So we'll take them one at a time. Look with me at verse 18. Wives. Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. In the Colossian church of the first century, women who were married were expected to be the wife of one husband, same as today. And what does the Lord require of women in this marriage relationship? What does it say? To submit. Straightforward enough. Okay, let's move on, right? No? Uh, Of course we must ask, what does Paul mean by that? Right? What does he mean by that word? Well, in the Greek New Testament, the word submit can be used in in a rather forceful way, like in Romans 8 verse 20, where Paul writes, for the creation was subjected to futility. Or in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, for God has put all things under subjection under Jesus' feet. 
but that's not the use here. This is not a forced submission. Paul's emphasis in the text is clear that this instruction is to submit oneself. So what's different about this? Well, the emphasis is on the actor's willful yielding, cooperatively putting yourself under the leadership of another person. So to illustrate this, we we can see that the same word in use is found in Luke 2, verse 51, when as a young boy, Jesus, quote, went down with his parents and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. It's not that Jesus was forced into submission, but rather that he willfully submitted to their leadership. And so wives, that's what Paul means here by the instruction to submit, to graciously accept your husband's leadership role and to humbly come alongside him as a helper, as is fitting in the Lord. And that's what Paul says, as is fitting in the Lord, not as is fitting in first century Roman culture, not as is fitting in 21st century American culture, as is fitting in the Lord. As a part of God's redemptive community, then we will relate differently in our respective relationships. So how is a wife to relate differently to her husband as as a follower of Jesus Christ? She submits not with unthinking obedience to her husband. As a Christian wife, you are ultimately responsible to the Lord. So so if your husband is, is leading you into sin or is abusive, who are you ultimately responsible to? The Lord Jesus, not to that kind of coercive behavior. But this submission, this call to submit to your husband, it's not out of passivity. It's not out of dormancy, right? It is, it is active, it's sincere, it's a decision, and more than that, it's a disposition. You could come up with a with hundred different scenarios. You know, do I have to submit in this situation or in that situation when, when he says this or when he won't communicate about that? But this is not a one-time decision. It's, a, it's an ongoing decision. It's a disposition of your, of your character, of your will. And so if you're a married woman and your husband's living and you're listening to this message, let, let's, let's get real. Deep down, is it easy or is it hard to submit to your husband? Do you find that it's easy or hard? Because the instruction is not limited to submitting to the perfect husband. You know that that's not your husband. It's not limited to when you feel like it, because that will ebb and flow. And it's not limited to when he actually has the better idea, as rare as that may be. If you're a a young woman who's married or, or hoping to be married, I hope that this message even presses you in particular to consider what the Bible actually teaches in regard to your role in marriage. If you're married... Why do you relate the way that you do toward your husband? Well, some of us learn from what was modeled before us. And so we follow our parents' example. Well, they related this way, so I relate this way. Others of us uh, aim for quite the opposite of what was modeled in our home. And I'm not going to have you raise your hand if that's you. But we also might be surprised at how much popular culture, like TV and social media, can influence our views of how we ought to relate in marriage. Here's my point. Is it possible that other factors are shaping your view of how you're supposed to relate to your husband? 
differently than what the Bible describes here. If Paul's instruction to submit yourself to your husband is difficult, kindly allow Paul's explanation at the end of the verse to encourage you. It is fitting in the Lord. It's beautiful. It's desirable. It's good. It's intended for your flourishing. The Lord intends this for your well-being. In this, you reflect the radiant bride of Christ. In this, you reflect the Lord who is himself our helper. So wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, now Paul turns his attention to you. So let's look at verse 19 together. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. If you're a married man or hope to be married someday, um, don't, don't sit back, but lean in, even young men. Uh, the Lord over your life has something to teach you here, husbands and future husbands. So husbands, and I find myself in this group, we are given two instructions. One of them is a, is a positive affirmation. The other is, is more of a negative prohibition. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So first we should ask, what, is, what does Paul mean by the word love? That's the key word here. Paul pointed out, or excuse me, Matthew pointed out last week how culture's definitions of love are just totally out of whack, right? What does culture say love is? Love is what feels good. Love is self-expression. Love is self-affirmation. Love is getting what I want. But that's not love, that's vanity, right? Biblically, that is sinful pride. What is love biblically? Well, according to Mark 12, 30, this kind of love that Paul describes is an all-encompassing kind of love. Mark 12, 30 is where Jesus says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength with everything. It's what John describes and teaches us in 1 John 4, 10. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's an all-encompassing love. In the Greek, it's agape love. So in the original language, Paul had a lot of different options to choose from. He could have focused on familial love or a friendship kind of love or romantic love, but he didn't. Instead, he uses a word that refers to God's covenantal faithful love toward his people. It's a self-giving, devoted, wholehearted, committed love. So Paul says, husbands, love your wives. When he says this, consider the glorious vision that he has in mind. In this redemptive Christian community, husbands who are believers of the Lord Jesus Christ will do something radically countercultural. In the first century, heads of households in that place and time were to keep decorum, to keep things in order, to keep things in line, because that created stability within society and for the state. The secular code was never husbands love your wives, but that's what's taught here in the Bible. And in the 21st century, this teaching remains countercultural. If our culture says love is self-affirmation or self-expression or ultimately getting what I want, then this is a totally different kind of love. The love God calls husbands to is unconditional, meaning that it's not conditioned based on how the other actor is treating you. 
or what they are giving you in return. So husbands, listen, there will be moments and days and maybe even long seasons of your marriage where your wife does not treat you well. You may feel disrespected. Her behavior might might seem unlovely to you, and yet you are called to love. Loving your wife will necessarily require you to make sacrifices of what you want in order to serve her. You might be sitting here in year five or 15 or 45 of your marriage and find that you're struggling in this, actually. Married men, follow Christ's example. Follow Christ's example and and apply this to the relationship with your wife. Think about Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but count others, count your wife more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, to the interests of your wife. Consider this for a moment. Why does Paul give the exhortation for wives to submit to their husbands and husbands to love their wives? Could it be in part that men and women tend to have respective susceptibilities when it comes to this relationship? That husbands in particular are prone to misuse their leadership? Yes. Yes. Husbands in particular are prone to misuse their leadership. But leadership is not something that should be marked by displays of power, but by humble service. Paul makes this clear as he writes the second half of this instruction. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. To love as God loves means that you are to not be harsh with them, to not be strict and demanding. So what would be the opposite of these things? If you're supposed to put off this kind of demanding behavior or harsh treatment, what are you to put on? Well, if we look at verse 12, just a few sentences before our passage today, you can see this verse. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Husbands, ask yourself, have you been harsh with your wife? Have you failed to put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience? You may have raised your voice last week. You may have demanded your own way. You may have been uncompassionate and unkind and proud and harsh and impatient. But hear the good news. Jesus died for those things too. Jesus, if you trust in Jesus, your sins are placed on him on the cross and his righteousness is given to you. And so now if you are in Christ, he's given you his spirit now to enable you to live a different kind of life out of this new identity in him. As you are clothed in Christ, your your character necessarily changes. You're progressively sanctified and become more like how Christ treats his church out of a loving sacrifice for her. And so ask yourself, men, are you willing, am I willing to grow into this kind of Christian maturity, into this model of biblical manliness, this call as the husband to your wife to lay down your life in order to serve her, to love her? And listen, these these aren't the only instructions that could be given to husbands and wives on these two 
but they are of primary concern to the Lord. And so before I move on to the next point, I want to add one more note. If you are a single woman or a single man who maybe will be married one day, meditate on these verses. Consider these verses and others like them in Ephesians 6 and 1 Peter 3 and Titus 2. Allow God's word to shape your thinking about these things and your character and your behavior because that's going to change the kind of spouse that you look for and marry one day. And this will change you as well. So question one, how do we gladly submit to the Lordship of Christ in marriage relationships? Well, in the church, wives humbly submit to their husbands and husbands tenderly love their wives as an expression of our new identity in Christ. Question two, how do we gladly submit to the Lordship of Christ in parenting relationships? So we're going to look at verse 20 here, speaking to children. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And so when I say parenting relationships or family relationships, I'm I'm going to speak to both parents and children. Uh, And Paul begins with children. And notice that Paul doesn't write to parents saying, oh, by the way, if you could pass along this instruction to your kids, tell them to obey. He doesn't use messengers or mediators to get this point across. He speaks directly to children as if they were gathered with the adults. So listen, children can listen to the preaching of God's word and sit under it. They can sing Christ-exalting songs. They can respond in faith and be baptized. And as maturing young adults become covenantal members of a local body of Christ. Let's not underestimate children and their integral part in this kind of biblical community. Children are given the dignity of being directly addressed by the Apostle Paul in a letter that's read aloud in the Colossians church. And so I'm going to do the same thing for children today. I want you, if you're a young person in here, to raise your hand if you're under 13 years old and keep it up if you're under, let's say, 18 years old. All right, let me qualify it this way. Keep your hands up. If you are a child or young person still under the supervision of your parents or a responsible adult, raise your hand, okay? I'm going to be speaking to you guys, okay? You can put your hands down. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have been told by your parents that you must obey? Every single one of you, every single one of you, all of us at different points in our life as children were told to obey, right? You can't even keep track of the number of times that you were told to do one thing and don't do another thing, right? Am I right? Yeah, I need to see some nodding here. It can feel a whole lot like a list of do this and don't do that. Can any of you young people relate to that feeling? Maybe. You might find that it's easier to trust that feeling, believing that your parents are almost out to get you in some way or that you're they're trying to make your life difficult than it is to humbly consider what God wants you to do as a child in that relationship with your parents. And maybe you've even gotten discouraged from time to time. And so obedience is particularly hard for you. And so I want to point out two things to you if you're a young person living in your parents' home. One, what does God want you to do? And two, why he wants you to do it. So what does God want you to do? Look at verse 20. We just read it. Children, 
Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Let's get practical. Let's, let's say you're told to get your homework done before any screen time. And you've gotten most of your homework done, and you turn on the device. Is that obeying your parents? Let's say you're told to wash the dishes after dinner, and you wash all of the dishes that are in the sink, but not the ones on the counter or on the table. Is that obeying your parents? Let's say you're told to help your younger sibling with something and you protest or do it with a poor attitude. Is that obeying your parents? No. We know what obeying our parents looks like, right? And we have an endless ability to justify our behavior. The teaching is clear. Children, obey your parents in everything. Not in some things, not just in the big things, but in everything. And parents, a note to you here, don't miss that this obedience that is required by the Lord is a good thing. It's a truly good thing. It's part of God's design for families. If you're a mom with with toddlers or young children or a parent with rising young adult children, it can be easy to be discouraged in this way. The fall of man means that your children have warped wills that are often opposed to even the best parenting. We can't escape the reality that this is hard work, but it is good work. And it's, and it's God's call for you to raise these children up in a way that honors the Lord and ultimately points them to the one to whom all of us ultimately obey. So children and young people, back to you. We understand that the Bible teaches us to obey our parents in everything, but why? Why do we do this? Verse 20 tells us, for this pleases the Lord. So think about this. Think about humans, right? We come into the world as babies and we need literally everything, right? We need to be helped with everything. We need to be fed. We need to be rocked to sleep. We need our diapers changed. But over time, we learn and we grow, right? As we grow older, we learn to tie our own shoes and to pack our own backpack and to complete our own homework without mom and dad following up, hopefully. But notice something. You being a child under the authority of your parents is God's very design for the family. It's how we grow up. It's God's purpose for you. And so when as children we obediently submit to our parents' authority, we honor God's design and we experience blessing in that. It's right and it's good to obey. So when you're going through your childhood years, it, it, it could be easy to look ahead and say, oh, well, when I'm in middle school or when I'm in high school or when I'm a teenager, when I'm 18 or when I have a license or when I can move out. And you can miss what God is wanting to do right here, right now in your family and in your home. Consider the life of Jesus, how he submissively obeyed to his parents Luke 2.51, which I already quoted, describes a 12-year-old. Jesus was 12, and he came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And the very next verse says that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And in Hebrews 5, we read that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus was submissive to his parents. Jesus learned obedience and grew in wisdom. And you need the very same thing. You need the very same thing. You need to learn obedience and grow in wisdom. You need to submit to the parenting that God has placed in your life. So think about yesterday. Think about this last week. 
Have you been obeying? Have you been obeying in everything? When you're instructed to bring, uh, to begin your homework and you don't want to, ask the Lord for help to obey. When you're trusted to turn off the video game after only an hour of playing, ask the Lord to help you to obey. Seek to please the Lord. Your obedience to your parents is obedience to the Lord Jesus. And fathers, now Paul turns his instruction to you as the second part uh, here in verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So fathers and mothers, what, what is the parenting responsibility? Right? A quick scan of scripture shows that we should train up a child, that we should teach a child, that we should bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And those are the kinds of directions one might expect to see in this passage, right? But we get something a little bit different. And no doubt this is a concern born out of the reality that children can become what? Discouraged. It's painful when you see a child rebelling right? A young child may stomp their feet. An older child may mouth off at you. And saddest of all is when a child chooses to break relationship with you. But our culture affirms this kind of behavior as a form of self-liberation and self-expression and self-love. It's in our music. It's in our movies. My wife and I were watching a show just this last week where uh, the protagonist uh, says, I think it must be hardwired into us to reject our fathers. And in some ways, that's true. But why is that true? Well, dads and moms, is it true that children tend to push against your authority? Yes. Uh, ever since the fall, humans have been given this, this sinful bent through Adam's sin We've fallen. And in children, that sinful bent is shown in the willful disobedience to parents. So consider it this way. A child's rebellion is a spiritual war zone that parents are in every day. And if you're not a parent or you are not parenting children right now in your home, please pray for the other parents in our church. They're in a spiritual war zone, right? But be careful, parents, to discern who the enemy is. Your temper tantrum toddler is not the enemy. Your unmotivated middle schooler is not the en enemy. Your uncommunicative high school student is not the enemy, parents. Sin is the enemy within. Do you think that your children can sometimes feel like they're, that you're against them? Well, consider this. Instead of giving a grammatically positive instruction like love your children, why do you think Paul writes with negations? Do not. Do not provoke your children. Or in other words, he's saying, instead of saying, do this, he's saying, don't do that. Is it possible that we as parents can tend to provoke our children? Notice who this is first and foremost written to. Fathers, dads, you have a particular weight in your relationship with your kids. The, the power balance dramatically favors you. You carry authority and you, what you say and how you say it and what you allow and what you don't allow and how you discipline and how you react, all of these things have the potential to be great good or they can cause great harm to your children. 
You don't need to take a popular psychology class to learn that. Scripture gives you the reason right here. Why is this instruction so important to your role as a parent? Lest they become discouraged. Lest they be pushed away. Children obeying parents in the Lord is good and right, but parents, watch your life, how you lead your children as a father and as a mother, and apply the previous teaching from Colossians 3 to parenting. So I went through verses 13 through 17, and I thought, let me give some encouragement to you related to parenting from Paul. Verse 13, bear with your children. If you have a complaint against one of your children, forgive them as the Lord has forgiven you. Above all, put on love as you relate to your children, as love binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts as you lead your children. Be thankful in the midst of parenting. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing your children in all wisdom. Sing songs of worship with your children, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, as a parent, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In the Colossians culture, the secular instruction of fathers would be to rule their households, including their children. But notice that Paul's choice of instruction here, while, no, while in no way is exhaustive, is to direct fathers to exercise, not to exercise their authority, but to gently lead, to gently fulfill their responsibility as a father and as a parent. So question two, how do we gladly submit to the Lordship of Christ in, in parenting relationships? Well, in the church, children willfully obey their parents and parents gently lead their children as an expression of our identity in Christ. Question three, this is our last big question for today. How do we gladly submit to the Lordship of Christ in work relationships? Paul spends most of his time on this third set of relationships. And to be honest, without keen discernment in this section, we might find ourselves unnecessarily confused about what scripture teaches, particularly related to servants and masters. My aim is to guide us in contextual clarity and biblical wisdom so that we can be confident in the word of God and live out our identity in Christ. So therefore, in this next section, as we've done in the last two, we'll first... Be careful to understand the meaning of this passage in its original context. Second, consider the timeless principles of what it teaches. And third, consider how we ought to apply it in our context today. The ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle records what at the time was considered to be the threefold relational parts of the family. Masters and slaves, husbands and wives, and fathers and children. And Paul has addressed, as you can see, husbands and wives, fathers and children, and now he turns his attention to this relationship between servants and masters in verse 22 and following. In the first century, Colossae, what we need to ask is what was meant by this term bondservant? The term here is translated in, in English Bibles differently. It could be servant or bondservant or slave. According to the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary, and I've put this quote up here, Slavery was prevalent and widely accepted in the ancient world. The economies of Egypt, Greece, and Rome were based on slave labor. And in the first Christian century, one out of three persons in Italy and one out of five elsewhere was a slave. 
So this was a significant population with responsibilities ranging from working in fields and mines and building projects and so on. And many were civil servants or servants or, or domestic servants in the home. So servant or bond servant might be the best translation here as Paul is addressing servants in the household of their master. That's the original context of this instruction. But let me address something else. While the Bible never endorses slavery, it does regulate it, as Moses did with divorce in the Old Testament. The Bible teaches here how servants and masters ought to relate to one another within this broken institution. And it's also valuable, perhaps, to point out the differences between the servitude that's in view in Colossae from the chattel slavery in the history of Europe and the United States that we are more familiar with. Christian Baker helps us here when he writes, the slavery of recent centuries, as we know it, forces individuals into an oppressive life of unmerciful labor, often with no hope of freedom. This kind of slavery is immoral. It's dehumanizing and ungodly and absolutely has no rightful place in this world. And scripture explicitly forbids this kind of slavery. In fact, anyone who took partook in this kind of slavery was commanded to be put to death according to the Mosaic law. So we don't have time this morning to address everything that Paul does not say in this passage or address all that the Bible teaches in regard to the institution of slavery. But suffice it to say that there is a Christ-centered, God-glorifying reason why Paul exhorted a man named Philemon, a master, to welcome a runaway slave named Onesimus as a beloved brother, not as a slave, but as a brother. The collective testimony of scripture and the gospel in particular so ultimately sows the seeds for slavery's demise. Our responsibility this morning, however, is to focus not on slavery in general, uh, but what, on, what Paul is describing here within the context of how bondservants and masters should relate and why the Holy Spirit intended for us to learn from it today. The very fact that Paul addresses this bondservant and master relationship reminds us of how utterly comprehensive the lordship of Christ is. The lordship, the authority of Jesus, um, the, of Jesus' lordship over our lives as Christians. No relationship is excluded. Not even relationships that we would never choose for ourselves if given the choice. So think about it this way. We don't get a pass on honoring the Lord just because a certain structure or relationship is marred or deeply broken by sin, right? Whether in marriage or in family or in work or in any other kind of relationship, it is our responsibility now to discern how the Lord intends for us to live in a way that submits wholly to the Lordship of Christ in every relationship that we are in. So let's look at what Paul teaches, starting in verse 22. To bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. We'll pause there. Notice that the servants here are given direct instruction, right? Just like how the children were directly addressed. And in this, they're given the instruction, uh, excuse me, uh, not by telling, this is not directed by masters being told to give this instruction to servants secondhand. And why is that significant? Because it shows that their dignity is affirmed. 
in these men and women who are present as a part of this new community. So we'll get to the requirements for masters in a few minutes, but let's start here. What are the requirements for bond servants? Well, as with the command given to children to obey their parents, so servants are instructed to obey their earthly, their earthly masters. Not in some things, not most of the time, in everything. And Paul is about to explain what he means by that. He's going he's gonna to qualify that in some ways. So from the second half of verse 22 through verse 25, the, the timeless principles of this passage really start to become clear as Paul answers three of the most important questions that you could ask when it comes to working for someone in any culture at any time. And so I have no doubt that you'll quickly see the application that will come from this because there is application for us in our work today. So Paul's going to answer the following three questions. So this is still under our heading of um, how we gladly submit under the lordship of Jesus and in in our relationship with, with work. Um, these are the three sub-questions that I'm going to have us ask. How are you working? Why are you working? And for whom are you working? Okay. So look at the second half of verse 22 through verse 25. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So as we consider these three questions, I want you to keep your work in mind. Whether you have a vocational job or whether, like Matthew prayed earlier, you have other work relationships, I want you to keep that kind of work in mind as we go through these three questions, because this section will help you relate to your earthly employers. How are you working? Look at verse 22, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, with sincerity of heart. What is, what is Paul addressing here? He's saying that true obedience is not found when I fulfill my duty only to be seen only to get praise, only for it to be affirmed and recognized. True obedience is not found in people pleasing, but in pleasing the Lord. It's not found in fearing man. It's found in a holy fear of the Lord. The Lord is our ultimate authority above every institution and every relationship. Thus, obedience should be embraced from the heart, from a sincere heart. And verse 22 is even more encompassing, saying, what Ever you do, work heartily, right? Heartily, in the, in the original language here, means out of the soul or from the heart. It's not just a matter of sincerity. It's about giving your best. It's as if Paul were writing today, he would say, put your heart into it. Into what? Into whatever you do, he says. If you're hanging sheetrock or running wire, do it from the heart, if you're editing something on a computer, do it with your whole being. If you're responding to even obnoxious customer complaints or questions, whatever you do, do it heartily. With most any job, there's going to be some things that you love to do and some things that perhaps you even loathe doing. 
Um, But what kind of attitude does Paul say that we should have about both for all areas of our work? That we should work sincerely and put our heart into it. So that first question, how are you working sincerely or insincerely? Half-hearted or from the heart? Question two, for whom are you working? Verse 23 says, whatever you do, work as for the Lord and not for men. Do we work for human managers and employers? Yes, of course. We, we clock in and we clock out. Our manager says, start this project and finish that one and we do it. The check has the company name and our boss's signature. Yes, we work for, for human earthly masters in that way. But, but ultimately, we're not working for the man. I now work for a nonprofit called Teen Pack Leadership Schools. My, my manager is our CEO, and above him is our board of directors. And, and honestly, I need to ask myself as I read this, am I seeking the approval of man, or am I seeking the approval of God in my work at Teen Pact? I can so easily seek to be under the approval of man. And can't you? Do you work as for men? Or as for the Lord. Verse 24 makes it abundantly clear. You are serving the Lord Christ. Paul is laser focused in this passage on what it looks like to gladly submit to Jesus' lordship. And in the hierarchy of work, he, he, he has us look not just to our earthly master, but to look above our earthly master to see who's master over all. To see that Christ is reigning over Each of us, as a believer, you're ultimately serving not your earthly master, but Christ above all. I've worked for a fast food restaurant, a grocery store, a coffee shop, and our church. And as a Christian, Paul reminds me that I am ultimately serving the Lord Christ in each one of those roles. So ask yourself, what do you do for work? Right? Who do you work for? Perhaps you have a a direct supervisor or manager or business owner who you work with. And maybe they're very kind and good at communicating expectations and great at enabling you with all of the resources that you need and very understanding at your request for flexibility. But that's not always the case, right? That's not always the case. Most of us, if not all of us, have experienced and maybe are experiencing even now or have recent experience with managers and employers who have failed us in some way. And if that's you, let's look closely at Paul's third question about work, right? So the second question, for whom are you working? Is it for the Lord or is it for men? Remember, you're serving the Lord Christ. Let's get to this third question. Why are you working? I realize that um, submitting and lordship aren't the most appealing categories for us, at least not naturally. Uh, We're immersed in a culture that rejects authority and affirms self-autonomy and views anyone in leadership with suspicion. And if we're not careful, that might win the day in our mind. Instead of of allowing the word of God to shape our thinking as, as we relate in the context of work. And it's here that Paul's teaching is particularly sweet. He gives us hope and confidence as we work. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive 
the inheritance as your reward. You can sincerely put your heart into your work, give it your all, serve the Lord, knowing that he keeps the receipts. More than that, he's the one who can do something about it. More than that, he's the one who promises to do something about it. He is the one who gives the reward. He is the one who gives you an inheritance. And so to the bondservants addressed in Colossae, who had no earthly inheritance, this was a truly sweet promise. And some of you might feel like you can relate to that in the sense that some of you have very little earthly status to point to after years, perhaps, of investing in your workplace. Very little recognition, even, even though you've been quite successful in your role, or few and only small pay increases when you've brought significant value to your company. Listen, there is a reward coming for faithful work that is pleasing to the Lord. It's coming. It's a sad reality that our earthly masters may never provide such an inheritance. But in the Lord, we are promised this kind of vindication. And Paul takes this a step further in verse 25. He says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he's done. There's no partiality. So let me ask you, have you been wronged at work? Has your manager told you one thing and done another? Have you been treated harshly, maybe even in front of coworkers? Have you been overlooked for a promotion Has someone working for you been dishonest and cheated you or the company? The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. You know how we know that? Because Christ is Lord over that person too. That's what this sermon series points to. It points to Christ above all. The unjust person will give an account for every wrong. There's no partiality in God. So this points us to a hope that we have as we work. The Lord promises both a reward for faithful work and punishment for wrongdoers. So why are you working? Your honest labor will be rewarded by the Lord and all these wrongs will be paid back. And Paul finally addresses masters in the last verse of our section. Chapter 4, verse 1, look there. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In the first century, these masters were heads of households, managers over those who served them. And I have no doubt that Paul's concern here is warranted. Bond service means working with no wages. Basic life necessities were provided for these men and women, but not much else. And so is it possible that in the homes of these Colossians, that masters might tend to treat their bondservants with unfair demands and injustice? You see, the repeated call throughout Scripture in the Old Testament is for the people of God to do righteousness and justice. It's what the prophets lament when they see injustice in the land, generation after generation. And Paul connects to those themes here by requiring masters, requiring masters to treat their servants with justice and fairness. He further directs masters to see that their position is not high and mighty above these lowly servants, but rather that earthly masters also have a master. 
We are all under the lordship of Christ. Therefore, masters should treat those in their service with dignity and respect and with that righteousness and justice that God requires of them. So, looking at our context today, consider, consider your work if you are an employer or a manager. How do you treat your employees and those underneath you? Because their experience should be markedly different because you are a Christian. It should be different for them. This is an active and ongoing commitment to treat those working for you with justice and fairness. Your commitment to do good by them should not be compelled by anti-discrimination laws because you'll get in trouble or because the minimum wage is rising in January. Okay, I guess I'll give you a pay bump. Moreover, Paul is not requiring or putting the responsibility on the employee to plead their cause. This is the responsibility of the owner or of the manager. This active and ongoing commitment to treat those beneath you with justice and fairness requires some reflection. Consider how you can go into your workplace this next week in a way that helps your workers flourish, to help them do excellent work and to give them the reward that they deserve. That is giving them justice. So how do we gladly submit the big question number three to the lordship of Christ in work relationships? Well, in the church, employees work sincerely and heartily as for the Lord. And employers and managers actively treat their workers with justice and fairness as an expression of our identity in Christ. If the worship team wants to head up here, I'm going to begin to close. Truman Burbank stepped through that door and embraced his new reality, his new identity. And as Christians, we're supposed to do the same. If your identity is in Christ... The implications are profound, touching every area of your life. Marriage relationships, child and parent relationships, work relationships. And think about this. Paul could have kept going, right? This room is full of different kinds of roles and responsibilities of relationships and how we are supposed to submit to the Lord. That's the question we should ask as we leave. How do we gladly submit to the Lordship of Christ in this relationship and that one, and here, and here, and here. Because everything in our life, including marriage, parenting, work relationships, ought to be gladly submitted under the Lordship of Christ. Amen?